message for today can be found on page 1024 in the blue Bibles under the chair in front of you. It is 1 John 5, 20 to 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So why do you believe what you believe about the world? It's a question we come back to from time to time, but it really is foundational. We all carry ourselves through the world with a web of beliefs, a series of understandings that help us make sense of the life that we're living and the place where we live it. There are some things that are fairly simple and routine, but are actually very important for living your life. So, for example, you have to answer questions like, what's the entry code to the doorway here? What time does the coffee shop open? How do I get from my home to my office? When am I supposed to take this medicine? There are some things that are a bit less cut and dry. What's the best exercise program for me to maintain my health? Should I go into this career field or will AI make it obsolete in the coming years? Is global warming a real thing? If so, is it a man-made phenomenon? If so, what should be done about it? Is now the best time to make an important financial decision? Will interest rates and the, the general trajectory of the global economy mean that it's better to, to wait and decide later? Right, those are also some fairly important matters, and the, the answers that you arrive at will have a lot of impact on your life, but I'm less interested in the conclusions you would arrive at and more interested in how you would arrive at them. There are some things we can learn through personal experience. So when I eat scallops, I get very sick. From that fact, I've concluded that I'm allergic to scallops. Never had that confirmed by any external authority, but I'm very comfortable with it. Most of the things that we know and believe, though, come at least in some measure from outside of us. So I know the door code at the office because the person who said it told me what it is. And my GPS tells me the most efficient way to get to work, given the traffic. A personal trainer might explain the way that we should exercise. Someone in the media convinced me that global warming is an existential threat or that it's a fabrication of the media itself. I actually don't know most of the things in my life from personal experience. Most things that I know, I know because someone told me and I've drawn conclusions from that information. And so it brings us ultimately, finally, to the question of authority. How do you know who you can believe? We all have to decide who we will trust, who we will recognize as an authority. Who can tell us what to think? Who can tell us what to believe? Again, sometimes this is easy. Sometimes the, the answers aren't all that important. I trust Waze. I've never been able to get Google Maps to load on my phone properly. People say it's great. I'm a Waze guy. It generally gives me the best route. If it's wrong, it's generally not that big a deal. If it's limited, it's, more, it's less limited than I am. I trust my cardiologist. He has a degree from GW, so he must be a very brilliant person. <laughs> I trust my dentist. I don't know why, I went to the dentist this week and I was like, this guy's basically a stranger, but he seems to know what he's talking about. His office is clean. I've been going there for 15 years. 
Never had any problems, right? So whatever he tells me is going on with my teeth, I believe him. He's got the x-rays. But sometimes it's a more difficult issue, right? Sometimes you have people who seem to know what they're talking about, and they're saying mutually exclusive things with 100% certainty. And so how do you decide what to believe? Who do you know that you can listen to? This is especially important in religious matters. Who can tell you about the meaning of life, the nature of the universe, the best way to live, how to find eternal blessedness, if that's even a thing? Who can tell you? Is it Buddha? Joseph Smith's revelation? Muhammad's very different revelation? The Pope? Some preacher on TV? Some best-selling book? Maybe you've decided to just opt out of the authority game altogether when it comes to religion. You've decided, given that you don't know who you can listen to, you're going to listen to yourself. In fact, most surveys of American religious beliefs would conclude that that is our dominant religion in America. Whatever I think. It's sort of a spiritual buffet. I take some things from Christianity, so I really like the importance of love. I like the idea that God's gracious and merciful and forgiving. I like the idea that Jesus was humble. So I take that, and I also put on my plate some things from paganism. The horoscopes can be fun. Uh, numerology can add some spice to your life. And then I, maybe for dessert, add in some things from Eastern religions. Karma seems like a fair way to run the universe. Uh, meditation relaxes me. So I take all of that and I mix it up with my own instincts, my own fears, my own experiences, my own desires, my own intuitions, and I create for myself a, a, a web of religious beliefs that in some way is unique to me. So for most Americans, we are the authority when it comes to, to religion. You believe what's right for you. Now, of course, there's two major problems with that approach. Uh, the first is that you're not qualified. Right? I don't even need to know you to know uh, that you are not qualified to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Right? Just think for a second about all of the times you're wrong about things. Right? Think about all the things you don't know about the world. And now ask yourself, why should you trust yourself when it comes to massive questions uh, about the universe? The second thing that's wrong with that is even your decision to be your own authority is one that's been shaped by the authority of other people. Right, for most of human history, the idea that I believe what's true for me would seem ridiculous and laughable. The fact that it's not funny to us is a product of the time and the place where we live. It's a product of the, the thinkers who have shaped the world that we inhabit. Your view of the world is not formed as some isolated, self-contained island of thought, but is in fact the product of many centuries of thinking and arguing and concluding. All of which is to say, none of us can escape the question of who's my authority? To whom will I listen? Who can tell me the truth? What view of the world will serve as my foundation? Am I going to listen to the people who are telling me to listen to them when they tell me to listen to myself? Or is there some other better authority? Is there someone with unique insight into the way things are? These are not new questions. These are not new issues. In fact, this was the issue facing the first century church to which the New Testament letter of 1 John was written. The congregation there had been infiltrated by false teachers, and these false teachers were contradicting the apostles' witness to Jesus. 
So we can't be 100% sure of the details, right? John's writing a letter to people who knew exactly what was going on, and so he doesn't sort of restate for us all of the issues in play. But it seems that these false teachers were saying that Jesus of Nazareth was a man, right? So far, so good. But that at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. Again, so far, so good. But it was only at that point that he became the Christ, the Son of God. That's the problem. And then they said that he ceased to be the Son of God on the cross, since the thinking went, the Son of God would never allow himself to be treated in such a way. These false teachers were saying that God's grace, his forgiveness, meant you could live any way that you wanted to live. You didn't have to worry about obeying his commands. And so this had created a crisis of authority in this early church. How could they know the truth? How could they know God truly? How could they know that they know him? Well, in many ways, John's been writing in this letter to which we come to the end today in order to address that crisis of authority. And so we come yet again to some of these same issues in these final two verses that Nathaniel just read for us. And so as we think about the very end of John's letter, 1 John 5, verses 20 to 21, uh, I'd like to look at two things together. First, let's look and see what John tells us about what Jesus came to do. So we're going to spend most of our time on that. And second, let's look and see what John tells us about how we ought to live in light of that fact. So that'll be our conclusion this morning. What Jesus came to do and then how we ought to live. So let's start with what Jesus came to do. I want to see two things that John tells us about what he came to do, and we see it there in verse 20. It says there, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So John writes there, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So you see two things affirmed in that statement. The first is the incarnation, the Son of God taking on human flesh. So the infant child born to Mary in Bethlehem, the one that we've been singing about this morning and this month, the one that we're celebrating at Christmas time, that child in the manger is the eternal Son of God in human flesh. John says there, the Son of God has come. Right, this is what we confess in the Nicene Creed. Right, this is a very early expression of what Christians have always believed. The Nicene Creed says this about the Lord Jesus. It says, And we believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made a man. That's what John's talking about here in 1 John 5.20. We know the Son of God has come. Again, if you've been here for this series of sermons, uh, you know that that's something that these false teachers were denying. Right, that, that Jesus uh, that is the Son of God uh, in human flesh, uh, born of Mary. Jesus didn't merely appear to come. 
He wasn't just a man who had extraordinary wisdom from God. He wasn't a man with sort of divine revelation, but he came the fully divine Son of God in human flesh and thus was fully human as well. The second thing John's affirming for us here in verse 20 is that Jesus came for a purpose. He came, John says, to give us understanding. Of course, that's not the only thing we could say about why Jesus came. He came to heal the sick. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He came to die for our sins and rise from the dead so we could be right with God. But here, John looks at one aspect of the salvation that Jesus came to bring. Why Christmas? Why the incarnation of the Son of God? Why did he come? Well, according to John here, one way we can answer that question is to say that he came to give us understanding. That is to say, he came so that we could know, so that we could perceive, so that we could believe, so that we could comprehend something that we would not know otherwise. And we find out what that is, or more accurately, who that is, there in verse 20. Jesus came to give us understanding, John says, there in verse 20, so that we may know him who is true. So Jesus came to give us understanding, to give us knowledge of, John says, him who was true. Okay, so who's that? John doesn't make it explicit here, but, but I think it's clear that when he says him who is true, he's talking about God the Father. So we see this in the, the gospel account that, that John wrote of Jesus' life. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays to God the Father in this way. So he's speaking to his heavenly Father in John 17, verse 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So in John's thinking, the only true God is a way of referring to God the Father. And so Jesus, the Son of God, come in human flesh, is the one that gives us knowledge of, understanding of God the Father. So in John chapter 14, we read about a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And I think it sheds light on what John's saying here. In John chapter 14, starting in verse 6, uh, Jesus uh, said to him, I, he's speaking to Thomas here, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then listen, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, so Philip's another one of his disciples, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, Jesus reveals the Father to us. There are things about God the Father that we would not know, that we would not understand if Jesus hadn't come, if he hadn't revealed God to us. Now, we can know certain things about God just based on the way that he's shown himself in the world that he's made. So you can go to an ocean, you can stand on a mountain, you can look at the night sky, and you can very reasonably conclude that whoever made this must be very powerful, very wise, very creative, very beautiful. 
And there are some things that you can know about God through his revelation of himself in the Old Testament. You could see that he is a God who loves his people. Uh, You could see that he is a God who is just and holy and powerful and glorious. But what Jesus is saying in John's gospel and what John's saying here in this letter is that there are some things about God the Father that you would not know if Jesus didn't reveal them to us, if the Son of God didn't show us. Right, so there in John chapter 14, Jesus tells Thomas, he says, from now on, you will know God the Father. Why? What was about to happen that would sort of mark a, a decisive point in, in Thomas's understanding of God? What was about to happen that would mean from now on the disciples know the Father? Well, if you read on just a few chapters, Jesus, he, he says this on the night before his crucifixion. Jesus is about to go and offer up his life on the cross as a sacrifice for his people. He, the Son of God, is going to hang on the cross as a substitute for us in our place. On the cross, he'll bear all of the sin, all of the guilt, all of the shame that we deserve for all of the ways that we've sinned against God and against one another. Jesus dies there on the cross, taking on himself what we deserve bearing the wrath that our sins deserve, experiencing the hell that would be your fate and mine. And he rises from the dead three days later in triumph over sin and death. And that's why Jesus can tell Thomas, from now on, you will know the Father. Because in his death and resurrection, Jesus is revealing the Father to us. He reveals him in his teaching, he reveals him in in his holiness and in his miracles and his mercy, but most clearly, Jesus reveals the Father to us at the cross. It's at that moment that the disciples will be able to see, perhaps for the first time, what their God is truly like. The disciples will see that God the Father has given his Son for our salvation. They wouldn't have dared to dream that if God hadn't done it. The disciples will see that God the Father is the one who sets his love on his people and that he loves them so much that he will hold nothing back from them, not even his precious, perfectly pleasing son. What is it that we hear the Father say about his son over and over in the Gospels? A voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That's the son that died for us on the cross. That's the son that that the father sent for us. And so at the cross, we see the great love of God the father revealed. We see the great lengths to which he's willing to go in order to save us. At the cross, we see the wisdom of God, that he found a way to forgive our sins without being unjust, as Jesus paid our price and satisfied the demands of God's holiness. So in his letter, John reminds his readers that Jesus came so that we might understand. He's given us understanding, he says there in verse 20, so that we may know him who is true. Friends, this is such good news for us. This means that anything that you see of Jesus in your Bible, so as you're reading and you're confronted by Jesus' kindness and his mercy, 
and his love and his grace and his compassion for sinners. When you see the way that he cares for and protects those who are weak, when you see his, his righteousness and purity and his, his hatred for injustice and wickedness, you can be sure that whatever you see of Jesus is a revelation of God the Father. God the Father and God the Son share the same divine essence. And so what we see of the Son is true of the Father. Jesus came, John says, to give us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And friends, this also means that we shouldn't look to understand God apart from his revelation through his Son. If you don't know God through faith in the Lord Jesus, then friend, what I would, I would say is you have to understand that this is how God has revealed himself. There is no other way, there is no other person who can show you what the Father is like. There is no other way, Jesus says in the passage we read earlier, to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus. Or just think about it. That has to be true. Otherwise, why would, why would the Son of God take on human flesh? Why would he offer his life up on the cross, dying in shame and agony under the, the wrath of God for our sins? If there was some other way for you to come to the Father, if there was some other way to reveal the Father to you, surely any other path would have been a better one. If some other teacher, some other philosopher, some other guru can give you what you need spiritually, well, then there's no reason Jesus would have come. It's only by knowing Jesus that we can know God. He came and has given us understanding so that we can know him who is true, so that we can know God the Father. There's a second thing here that, G that John tells us, a second thing that Jesus came to do. Uh, he came so that we could know the Father. He came to give us understanding. That's the first thing. But he also came so that we might be united to God. Again, look there in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You see, because Jesus has come, we don't just know him who is true. John says we are actually in him who is true. Before we were born of God, right, like the rest of the world, John tells us in, in 1 John 5, 19, the verse immediately preceding this one, he says that we were, like the rest of the world, in the grasp of the evil one. But now, in verse 20, because Jesus has come and has given us understanding so that we can know him who is true. Jesus says that we are in him. We're no longer in the hands of the evil one, but we are in God himself. This is a theme that Jesus speaks about again at great length before his crucifixion. Right? When, when we come to uh, what we read at the end of John's gospel account, we peer into some of the deepest and most wonderful truths of the Bible. Right? We are in God. We are united to him. Okay, well, what does that mean? Let me, let me try to explain that in two statements. What does it mean for us to be in God? Okay, first, the, the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are distinct from one another, 
but they are also so united that they can be said to be in one another. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God exists eternally in three distinct persons, but, but there is only one God. There is tri-unity, right? They are in one another. So back to John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking here to Philip, just a few verses after the ones I read earlier. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So God the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. And we're not told explicitly from this passage, but it's clear from the rest of the Bible that the, the Holy Spirit, who's sometimes called the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of God, is, is involved in this mutual indwelling, that the Spirit is in the Father and the Spirit is in the Son as well. Augustine of Hippo put it this way, speaking of the persons of the Trinity. He says, each are in each, and all are in each, and each in all and all are one. If you have questions about that. <laughs> right? It's a mystery, but it's a beautiful mystery. That the persons of the Trinity indwell one another. Uh, theologians call this perichoresis. Right? This idea that there's such unity, even within the diversity of persons in the Trinity, that the Son can say, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Right? You can't have one person of the Trinity without having the other two. You can't have any person of the Trinity without having the fullness of God. The second data point, so that's the first one. The second one, in order to understand what John's saying here in 1 John 5.20, is this. When the Holy Spirit indwells us, right, when the Holy Spirit causes us as, as human beings to be born of God, as John puts it in chapter 5, verse 18, the Spirit unites us spiritually to the Lord Jesus. To have the Holy Spirit in you is, in a very real way, to have Christ in you. Right? Jesus even says at one point that he will make his home in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit indwells you, you are united to the Lord Jesus, to the point that, that the Bible can even speak of you as part of his body. Right? This isn't just an idea or a sort of vague theological uh, concept. It, it, it's a vital reality. Because you have been united to Christ, his death to sin is your death to sin. Because you've been united to Christ, his resurrection to eternal life is your resurrection to eternal life. Because you've been united to Christ, his holiness is your holiness. Right? Jesus gives a really helpful word picture in John chapter 15 to help us kind of put flesh on this idea. Thankfully, he understands that we're, we are concrete people living in a physical world, and so he gives us this beautiful picture. He says, think of a vine with branches. Jesus says, I'm the vine. You all are branches. Right? Think about the relationship between a vine and a branch. Right? A branch receives its spiritual life from the vine to which it is attached Right, the, the, the sap, the, the, the life force of the vine uh, issues out through the branches. Cut off a branch, disconnect it, and it dies. 
And so what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit connects us, grafts us, plants us in, unites us to Jesus like a, like a branch on a vine so that his spiritual vitality runs through us and gives us spiritual life. So if you put those two truths together, I think you get some sense of what John's talking about here in verse 20 of our passage when he says, we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came so that we might have understanding, so that we might know him who is true, so that we can know the Father. Jesus died for us. He rose for us. He sent us his spirit. And the spirit in us is the spirit of the Son, of the Father. And so now we are united to Christ. We are in him. And because we're in him, and he's in the Father, we also are in the Father. We are, in John's words, in him who is true. So before we move on, let's just stop for a second and remember what a marvelous gift it is that we have in Jesus. If you find it hard to wrap your mind around all that John is saying here, or, or maybe the inartful way that I've tried to express it, that, that's actually a good thing. The fact that, that there are greater depths than we're able to plumb with our sort of limited minds and understandings is actually a, a great blessing because we have such a marvelous gift in the gift of the Lord Jesus that we'll never exhaust all of its joys and benefits. You know, this time of year, the carols might be familiar. The story might be one that we know well. But here in 1 John 5, we're reminded that the arrival of God's Son was not merely some cute, cuddly, sentimental, hallmark moment. The arrival of the Son of God in human flesh is nothing less than the decisive movement in God's plan to provide for your eternal well-being. Jesus has come in the flesh to give us knowledge of, the, of God and to give us the greatest privilege imaginable, a, a share in him a participation in the love and the life of the Trinity itself. And friends, this is good because God is so good. As John says there at the end of verse 20, he is the true God and eternal life. Right? To be united to this God is to be connected to eternal life itself. Right? To, be, uh, to be in Christ means that there's, there's nothing you can do to diminish that spiritual reality in the least. You've been connected to eternal, true, undying life. What a marvelous gift it is that we have in Jesus Christ. Okay, now we have to ask, though, if that's the case, like, why am I not happier? Like, why don't I feel better? on a day-by-day -day basis. Like, why doesn't my life, if, if everything John says here is true, why doesn't my life feel like one unending, glorious, spiritual high? Why am I sometimes bored and depressed and anxious and tempted and sad? Why don't people look at me and th think immediately, that guy must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That guy must be united to all three persons of the Godhead. Well, there may be several answers to that question. The first is that we live in a broken world. Godliness in this life is not always the same thing as happiness. Again, not in this world. The Lord Jesus himself experienced great sorrow and grief. The Apostle Paul spoke of being burdened beyond his strength. The greatest saints have known lives of struggle and burden. 
So we don't want to confuse this spiritual life that Jesus is giving us, this knowledge of God and union with him. We don't want to confuse it with ease and comfort and superficial happiness. Not in this life, at least. Right? What John says is still true. The whole world lies in the hands of the evil one. The devil will afflict and tempt and oppose us. But I do think there is something that we can do. There, there's something that we should do to abide in Christ and to experience that life flowing through us as sap flows through a vine more and more. And that brings us then to the second thing, I think, for us to see. And that is, how should we live in light of what Jesus has done for us? If Jesus came to give us understanding of the true God, if he unites us to him who is eternal life, then, then how do we live in light of that? We'll look there in verse 21. John concludes his letter with these words. Little children. Right? He's been using this. He's, he, he's used this affectionate uh, way of speaking to the church throughout the letter. He's an old man, and he's writing with tenderness and kindness. Little children. The last thing that he wants to say to them in this letter. Keep yourselves from idols. The Father is the true God. Right? But the world is littered with would-be gods, with God-pretenders, God-wannabes. It's most likely that John's writing from Ephesus, a city crawling with sites for worshiping idols. Surely his recipients were in a, in a similar situation in whichever city they were living in. And so everyday life would have presented these believers with many opportunities to worship other so-called gods. Right, that was the idea back then. You don't want to be too narrow. You don't want to be exclusive. You want to spread your worship out, if you can, just to make sure all your bases are covered. Because you might need this God to help you with this, and you might need this God to help you with that. But here John is exhorting believers. You have been given this marvelous gift. You have been given understanding of the, the true God. You have been brought into union with him. So it's insane to think about giving your love and your worship to another God. It'd be like being given a beautiful mansion, but spending every day wandering around looking for a cardboard box that you could live in. It just doesn't make any sense. Right? If we want to live in the joy of our salvation, if we want to have a daily experience of, uh, of enjoying our union with him who is true, John says, keep yourselves from idols. Well, let's ask a couple questions about that statement. First, what does it mean for us to, to worship idols? What does idolatry look like in our lives? Some of us may come from backgrounds where your family worshipped statues or honored other gods. I think for most people, at least in the West, that's not a raging concern, that we would go back to worshipping statues in temples. Instead, it seems that the idols that most threaten us are ones that are internal, ones on the inside of us. The Apostle Paul helps us I think to see how this works in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he writes this to the church. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
think Paul helpfully introduces a category for us, that an idol isn't just a statue. It's not even just a false religion. But an idol is anything, inside of us or outside of us, that competes for the love and the worship that's due to the one true God, to the one that Jesus came to reveal to us. And so Paul says covetousness is a form of idolatry because it's a form of false worship. Whatever it is that you covet, right, whatever it is that you desire so intensely, that thing is commanding the love of your heart. So idols can be sinful, destructive things. Sexual immorality, drugs, drunkenness. They can also be good things that take up an inordinate place in your life. Your children, your spouse, your desire for a relationship, success in your career, your favorite sports team, getting into the right school, comfort, leisure, the respect of your peers, right? You could keep spinning these things out. They're all things that tempt us to trust them. They, they tempt us to look to them for happiness and meaning and joy. There are all sorts of things that, that offer themselves to us as a kind of salvation. A medicine. Medicine's a good thing. But if your hope is ultimately and only in the fact that this doctor will figure out the cure for you, well, that thing is an idol. Politics can be an idol. Politics can be good. But when we look to a certain political party or a certain candidate as the one who's going to save us, well, that's become an idol. Our retirement savings. Retirement savings are a good thing. The Bible commends saving for the future. But when you look over the course of your life and you say, I will be okay because I have this nest egg, well, that thing has become an idol. And so we should ask ourselves, what, what things have taken up residence in our heart? that tempt us to idolatry. You can ask yourself some diagnostic questions. What do I need to have in order to be okay? To what do I give my best time and energy? What do I daydream about when I'm sort of left to myself? What makes me angry? I think your anger shows you your worship faster than anything else. For most of us, anger means that an idol is not being served in our lives. What makes you despair? What makes you hopeless? What does God have to give you or else you're out? Whatever those things are, whatever answers you might give to those questions, those things are very likely the idols in your life. Second question we need to ask, why would anyone be tempted to worship an idol? I think when it boils down to it, the answer is that we worship idols because we think they're going to do something better for us than the true God will do. That we think these idols will give us something that we need, and we're not confident that the true God will give it to us. It could be that we simply don't know the Father. We don't know the true God who is eternal life. And so we worship idols because we don't have any other options. Or it could be, and I think this is the case for John's readers and the case for us, it's because we, 
we aren't really confident that the true God is going to give us everything we need. We're not really sure that what we sang earlier is true, that he is the only treasure worth possessing. Right, again, if, if Thanksgiving dinner is on the table, you're not going to spend your day rummaging through the dumpster looking for scraps. Right, if you're sitting on a tropical beach or at the top of a mountain in the Alps or on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you don't, you don't pull out your phone and start playing Candy Crush. Idols appeal to us because they make a competing case. They argue that they can provide something for you that the true God can't or won't. Our idols tell us, I'll take care of you. If you have me, you'll have worth and identity. I'm going to give you real happiness. I'll give your life meaning and satisfaction. When you're with me, you will feel good and safe. And idolatry sets in when we believe them rather than the true God. When we say to ourselves, perhaps without even knowing it, you know what? This is what's going to save me. This is what I have to have. This is what I need more than anything else. And friends, if you know yourself at all, you know that you're prone to this kind of idolatry. Your heart and my heart are always manufacturing potential objects for worship. And so we have to heed vigilantly John's call here. Keep yourselves from idols. You won't experience the the joy of knowing the Father and being united to him if your life is marked by idol worship. And so then the last question we want to ask, how do we do that then? How do we keep ourselves from idols? The danger, I think, is that you hear a sermon talking about idolatry. Maybe this isn't the first one you've heard. And you think, okay, yeah, I've got idols. I need to stop that. And then you immediately go about living your life the same way you've been living it. But John says here, keep yourselves from idols. It seems that he expects that there's going to be an ongoing intentional effort required of us. He doesn't say just regret the presence of idols in your life. He doesn't say sort of swap your obviously destructive idols for socially acceptable ones. But he says, keep yourself, steer clear of them. Give them a wide berth. Keep away. Well, how do we do that then? I suggest two things as we conclude. I think first we remember just how little an idol can do for you. Right? It is the nature of sin to blind us to just how weak and how helpless our idols are when it comes to satisfying the deepest longings of the human soul. Think about how much time and energy the world spends on things that bring it no satisfaction, no lasting joy. Think think of the money and the time and the effort and the love that go into things that that are ultimately fruitless. Very often our idols lead us down a dehumanizing path. They leave us addicted to sad little pleasures that they'll give us in exchange for our lives and our worship. Certainly drugs, alcohol, greed, Sexual immorality have left many people at rock bottom. The psalmist committed himself to the worship of the true God, reminding himself of this. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Christian, hasn't that been your experience of idolatry? Have you ever 
gotten that thing that you really wanted and thought, oh, finally, I'm satisfied. This is life. This is all I need. There's nothing worse than getting the thing that you've wanted so badly and finding out that you're actually not all that much happier in the end, that your soul is not satisfied and that you don't even know what to do next. You spend your whole life trying to get a, a certain job, a certain promotion, and then you get it and you realize, well, I'm still the same person with the same problems. This didn't actually fix anything that's wrong with me. Right? Tom Brady famously, after winning 14th, 15th Super Bowl, whatever it was, right, talked about how sad it was to stand there with the trophy and the, the, the confetti coming down because he couldn't think of anything else to do with his life but except try to do this again. Right? Best case scenario, he got back here. And he's like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I'm happy and I'm satisfied. Right? There's nothing worse than getting your idol and realizing that it actually can't help you. I'm sure money is great, health is good, family's a blessing, but even when those things are at their best, and how often are they really at their best, it doesn't cure what's really wrong with us. None of those things can last. None of them are promised to you. They can all disappear in a moment, and if they don't, you will certainly leave them behind when you enter the grave. And none of those things, good though they may be, can bear the weight of a human soul. And so we begin keeping ourselves from idols by remembering just how little they can do for us. We learn not to be satisfied with, with that garbage pie that an idol offers. And then the second thing we do is we cultivate a taste for the true God, the one that Jesus came to reveal to us, the one that Jesus came so that we could be united to. So take a look at the idols in your life. Sex, substances, self, kids, career, cash. Look at all of those things and now look at the Father. Look at the one revealed to us by the Lord Jesus. Look at the one to whom you have been united. Look to the one who is, in John's words, eternal life. Jesus came so that we could have understanding, so that we could know him who is true. And so look at what we see of the Father when we look at the revelation of Jesus. Look at his great kindness and his mercy and his compassion. Again, look at the love that would motivate him to send his son to die for you. Not because you're so good, but despite you, despite your sin. Look at the wisdom and the power that, that could provide for our salvation and our eternal life through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Look at what he's done for you, how he's freed you from slavery to sin. Look at the million of kindnesses, small and large, that you experience every day from his hand. And look at what he's promised you for all eternity, unimaginable blessings and happiness in his presence. How do you keep yourself from idols? You, you compare those two things. You compare them and judge which one is worthy of your love, your worth, your worship, your devotion. Make no mistake, you will love, you will be devoted to, you will worship something or someone. The question is, is that person worth it? Is that person able to, to meet the deepest longings of your soul? Friend, only God can do that. The best husband, the best wife, the best kids, the best job, the best car, the best sports team, none of those things 
can ever satisfy the longings of our hearts. And so maybe the best place to start keeping ourselves from idols is here at the Lord's table. You know, there's this pattern that you see develop as you look at the the course of the Old Testament. God's people would descend into slavery to idols. And God, in response, would raise up a great king. And the king would go in and clear out all the idols. And the people would be restored to proper worship. And it was great until the king died and someone else took over. What we see is Jesus is the true and perfect king. He's the one who comes into our hearts and begins that work of clearing out our idols, that work that will be finished permanently when he returns. But each week we come to the table and we are reminded of just how great Jesus is, how great his love is for us. We come and we celebrate together the salvation that Jesus won for us at the cross with his broken body and his shed blood. We see how much he's done for us and we remember how little our idols have done for us. We see how rich a treasure we possess, that we're now in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, let's turn from our idols. Let's pray and come to the table again. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we delight in you, in the good gift that you've given us in your Son, that you sent him so that we might have understanding, so that we might know you who are true. We might be in you as we are in him. Father, we worship you as the one true God. We worship you as the one who is able to satisfy our souls and to give us eternal life. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would reveal to us our idols, that you would convince us in the deepest part of our souls of, of the worthlessness of these idols, and that you would help us to keep ourselves from them and to worship the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.